All right, you guys can turn to James 4. James 4. Uh, While you're turning there, a couple things that I wanted to mention this morning. First is a huge round of thanks to everyone who was involved with Country Fair. Really, I I think this was the best one we've ever had here at at Grace Bible Church. If you were here on Wednesday night, really, thank you so much. We have no idea how many people came. There were too many to count. They were in and out all night. We had lots of visitors. We had lots of international students and families who've never been here to Grace, and they were introduced to Grace through Country Fair. So thank you so much. There were hundreds of you who volunteered to pull that event off. We really are grateful for that. So that's the first thing. Second thing I wanted to let you guys know, you may not know this, but about a year ago, the elders of Grace Bible Church commissioned Brian Fisher and Matt Morton and myself to write some Bible studies on three biblical characters, so Gideon, Daniel, and Peter, and Nav Press picked them up to publish, and so they're now publishing them worldwide. Um, You can buy them here from the church directly. All the proceeds go to Grace. It was done on Grace Time, so these belong to Grace Bible Church. If you buy them from us, almost all the money goes to the church. If you buy them from Amazon, almost all the money goes to Amazon. So if you'd like any of these studies, they're for sale in the foyer today and will be uh, on sale regularly. Um, So three character studies, uh, if you want to go through those men's lives and learn from their example of faith. Second, number of people asked about the new bulletin, and it's smaller now because we're trying to save money and be good stewards of our resources. So there's now not a place to write your notes in the bulletin. What do you do about that? We went out and got some journals for taking notes and we found the least expensive quality ones we could find. um, And they are available every Sunday in the foyer, three bucks for one or $5 for two. And you can take your, your sermon notes in those. So just wanted to let you guys know about that. Okay. On to our passage, James chapter four. Okay, so I was married about nine years ago, a little over nine years ago now, nine years in a couple months. And early in our marriage, I went through this phase where I love to have whipped cream in my coffee. I don't know what inspired that. It only lasted for a few months. It was too sweet and I hated it. But for a few months, I just loved whipped cream in my coffee. It was perfect. And so my wife knew this. And about two months into our marriage, she went out and bought a tub of whipped cream to make a pie with. So she bought it midweek and she was going to make the pie in the weekend. And she brought it and she, she bought it and brought it home. And she said, well, Blake, I know you love whipped cream in your coffee. So just tonight, you can have a scoop of whipped cream in your decaf coffee. And I, I took that whipped cream. It was great. But she, she told me, don't, don't do this again because I need to have almost all of this whipped cream or I can't make the pie. So you won't get pie if, if you eat all this whipped cream. So I said, okay, no worries. Um, I enjoyed it that night. I woke up the next morning with a craving for whipped cream. I really, I wanted it badly in my coffee. And so I looked in that tub of whipped cream and I saw that that little scoop last night was very tiny. It had taken very little of the whipped cream. Almost all the whipped cream was left. So I thought, well, I can do this again. That's no big deal. So I take out a little teaspoon and I take a little whipped cream and put it in my coffee and look back and man, almost all the whipped cream is still there. So I thought, man, I can do that again. So I did it again the next day. I did it again the next day and the next day and the next day. And you know where this story is going. The weekend comes and Julie and I are in our little kitchen in our apartment and she goes into the refrigerator to get the ingredients for making the pie and she picks up that tin and cracks the lid and we're both shocked to see I have used up over half the whipped cream. There is not nearly enough for the pie, so I get no pie. And the worst part of all, I really hurt my wife's feelings. She was really looking forward to making me this dessert, and I had ruined it. She felt a little bit betrayed. If she can't trust me with whipped cream, then what exactly can she trust me with in this marriage? (laughs) My daily little compromise with the whipped cream had added up to a heaping helping of guilt and regret. And I just remember really plainly that feeling in my gut, that, that painful moment as she cracked the lid on the tub of whipped cream and I recognized the seriousness of my sin. 
This little thing that I thought was no big deal had added up. Well, that moment of of the recognition of the seriousness of our sin is what our passage is all about this morning. James wants to crack the lid, just a little bit, just crack the lid a little bit and let us see the seriousness of our seemingly excusable sins. Those little sins in our lives that we feel like are no big deal, he wants to reveal to us just how serious they are. Now let's set this up. Last week, we entered into this subject of wisdom and and James is continuing that discussion of wisdom this morning. We studied wisdom last week and we, we learned from scripture that when the Bible uses the word wisdom, it means three things. There's three facets of wisdom. Wisdom biblically includes discernment. That's the ability to see what is best and it includes skill. You are able to apply that discernment to your life so that you master every area of your life, every relationship, every task, And finally, it is a pattern. You don't just make one wise choice on one day, but wisdom is to make the right choice day after day after day so that you live a successful life. That is wisdom. But we discovered last week that there's a problem. We live in a world with two forms of wisdom. Two types of wisdom that you get to choose between. Both types offer you all three of these things, discernment, skill, and success. Those two types of wisdom. First, there's the counterfeit variety. The wisdom from below, it is characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition and the the lust for the pleasures of this world. And the outcome of counterfeit wisdom is conflict and evil. That's what it produces in our lives as individuals and as a community. In contrast to that, there's true wisdom that comes as a gift from God. True wisdom is characterized by pure and peaceful behavior, by mercy, by loyalty, by truth. And the outcome of true wisdom is it fosters peace and righteousness in us as individuals and as a community. Now, you look at that list, and it's pretty obvious. We would like the one on the bottom. All of us would like true wisdom, can have conflict and evil over here or peace and righteousness over here. I'll take the peace, thank you very much. I'll take rightness, righteousness. So we want true wisdom, but how do you get it? How do you embrace God's true wisdom and reject the counterfeit wisdom that this world is trying to sell us every moment of every day? How do you do that? How do you turn away from the wisdom of this world and embrace the wisdom of God? Well, that question leads James to something bigger. A bigger question, a bigger issue, because this struggle that we face with trying to reject the wisdom of the world and embrace God's wisdom, that is just one symptom of a bigger problem. And now James is going to draw together everything that he has been working on all the way through the book. All the themes of the book come together in our passage this morning. We're going to look at the climax of the book of James. He's going to take everything that we've studied and bring it together into a climax where he reveals to us our fundamental problem. Where is it that we're going wrong in life? For all of us, what is the fundamental nature of our problem in life? He's going to reveal that, and then he's going to reveal God's grand solution, how God is going to solve this fundamental problem we have. So that is where our passage is going this morning. Let's go ahead and read the whole thing, starting in chapter 4, verse 4. Climax of the whole book of James, starting in verse four. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. 
but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. In this passage, James begins with our fundamental problem. That's the subject of the first two verses. But as we walk through this passage, you probably realize really quickly, this is not going to be a fun passage to study. It's not a happy passage. It's a passage full of really harsh language. When you read this passage, when I read it, I imagine James being pretty angry, a little ticked off as he writes these words, full of all this really strong language. He calls his audience adulteresses, enemies against God, sinners, double-minded, really harsh language. Now, if you're anything like me, the first time you listen to that language, your natural response is to push back. Man, James, I don't know what's in your crawl this morning, but you are not talking about me. These words cannot apply to me, right? I've never committed adultery against my wife. I'm not an enemy against God. I'm not out worshiping some other gods or turning people away from God. How could this passage apply to me? Reminds me when I was in eighth grade, Eighth grade science class, I got called to the principal's office for the first and only time in my whole life. Never had happened before, never happened again. I got sent to the principal's office, and here's what was going on. I was, um, I was a fan of science. I liked science a lot. So did my friends. We were the nerd table over here, and, and we knew a lot about science. And in this particular lesson that we were studying, we happened to know just a little bit more than the textbook or the teacher. And so we thought that was funny. And so we began to be disruptive and maybe to make a few wisecracks about our teacher and thought it was no big deal until the principal came for us. And we had to go to his office. And I thought, wait a minute, you, you, you can't be looking at me, right? I'm, I'm an A-plus student, honor roll every six weeks. The only reason I know where your office is is because I go there every month to get my awards from you. You can't be talking to me. But he was. He was talking to me just like James is talking to us. This passage is not for the world at large. It is for us in this room. Let me prove that to you. Let's look at the big word that James uses, the word right at the beginning of the passage, that very uncomfortable word, adulteress. What is James doing with that? Now, you may notice it is feminine, adulteresses. That's a clue. It's not about literal adultery. It's a common theme in scripture to equate idolatry with adultery unfaithfulness to God with adultery and marriage. James is just picking up a common theme that we find throughout the Old Testament. Whenever God's people worshiped other gods, God called that adultery. He equated idolatry with adultery. You see it like in Jeremiah 3.20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. They worshiped other gods and God said that is like adultery. Same thing in Ezekiel 16 to the residents of Jerusalem who were out worshiping the gods of other nations. God says, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. So the Bible often equates idolatry with adultery. And the reason is because both relationships, our relationship with our spouse and our relationship with God, both relationships demand exclusivity. By the very nature of the relationship, it's a one and only kind of relationship. Think about my marriage with Julie. When, when I said yes to Julie on that stage nine years ago, I was, by necessity, saying no to all other women, right? 
That's what marriage is. I get to say yes to one and in so doing say no to all others. That's what marriage means. It's exclusive by definition. Well, our relationship with God is the same way. You can either have the one true God or you can have all other gods, but you can't have both. God will suffer no rival. He demands exclusive allegiance, exclusive worship. To worship anything else is idolatry, which equals adultery. You see that actually, uh, if you look in the Old Testament to the summary of God's law, the 10 commandments, what do the first two commandments talk about? Idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The top of the list of God's great commandments in life is you shall not worship other gods. That is idolatry, which is equal to adultery against God. And notice the the rationale at the end of this passage. Why must we not worship other gods? Because our God is a jealous God. And, And he's using the same word that we studied last week in chapter three, jealousy. It can be good or bad. It, it in chapter three was bad. It was about us. When we intensely crave the things that other people own, that's bad jealousy. But this is good jealousy. God intensely craving the faithfulness of his people. That's jealous in a good sense. It's the jealousy of a husband for his wife. Not gonna have anybody else with his wife. He's jealous for her. And what that means is that when we are unfaithful to God, he is gonna respond in the same way as a jilted husband. He is enraged by it. His jealousy is enraged within him. And I think that's what James is talking about in verse five. Verse five is a really challenging verse. It's hard to even translate what James does in verse five, but I think the NAS gets it right. I think he's quoting from from the Old Testament. He jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. God jealously desires the spirit that's either the Holy Spirit he placed in you the moment you believed or the human spirit that he created in you when you were born. Um, Whatever it is, God jealously desires you. That's the point. He wants you. He wants your allegiance. He wants your loyalty. When you give it to someone else, it enrages him. It enrages his jealousy against you. Okay, so that's why you see this equation throughout scripture that idolatry is equivalent to adultery. Both demand exclusivity. When we worship other gods, we are committing adultery against God. Now, that seems straightforward enough. If I commit idolatry, I am committing adultery against God. Seems simple enough. Challenge is none of us are out there worshiping idols, right? I'm, I'm going to take a leap here and assume that back in your apartment or dorm room or, or house, you do not have some shrine set up with a, a statue made of, of stone that you pinch incense to every day, right? I'm guessing you don't have that. If you have that, come talk to me afterwards. That's a big deal. Um, but I'm going to assume that you, that you don't have that. And, and so how can this passage apply to us? Actually, how can it apply to James' audience? They were first century Jews. And by the first century, the Jews had been cured of the whole idolatry thing. The exile hundreds of years before had cured them of idolatry. They didn't worship carved statues. They didn't worship idols either. So how can James accuse them of adultery, which is idolatry? Well, he gives us the answer in in verse four. Look at verse four again. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? What James wants us to understand, 
when we, God's people, enter into friendship with the world, when we flirt with the world and become comfortable with the world, that is equivalent to idolatry and thus adultery. Idolatry and thus adultery. Now, what does it mean to be a friend of the world? We use that word friend very casually. You can have a thousand friends on Facebook, half of whom you've never met. That's not what they meant by friend in the ancient world. A friend was someone with whom you shared all things. You shared worldview, you shared possessions, you, you did life with that person. You valued what they valued, you, you did what they did. That's what it meant to be a friend in the ancient world. And, and what James is accusing his audience of, remember he's talking to believers, to those who've already trusted in Christ, they have eternal life. What he's saying is, you love God, you do. You love God and you want to obey God. You love God, but you also love the world. You want to be friends with God and friends with the world. You want what God has to offer and you also want what the world has to offer. He summarizes that in the key word in verse eight. Look again at verse eight. We've seen that word before, double-minded. It's a big theme of James, the fundamental problem of James. It's why we named this whole sermon series Undivided. Because the fundamental problem that we face as human beings, as followers of God, is our propensity to be double-minded. That literally means you have two minds, two purposes. You love God. I trust that you do. You love God. You want to be close to him. You want to obey him. But you also love the world. You want to be loved by the world. You want to enjoy the world's stuff. You want to be friends with both God and the world at the same time. That is what it means to be double-minded. You're trying to cling to God with one hand and the world with the other. And James wants us to understand to be double-minded, to love both God and the world is idolatry. And therefore, it is adultery. That's what he makes clear in the rest of verse four. It says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, what God wants us to understand. We want to hold on to God and the world. That's what I want. I want both. I want to love God and I want to love the world. God says, not possible. You cannot have both. You either love me or you love the world. You must make your choice because if you choose to love the world, then you are making yourself an enemy of me. Again, it's about exclusivity. We cannot have both. We either love God and are with God or we're with the world. We must make the choice. Jesus puts it this way, Matthew 6, he says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money is the God of this world. So James is just saying, you get to pick. You can either love and serve God as your master or you can love and serve money, which is the God of this world. You pick, you can't serve both. You cannot love both. You cannot cling to both. You must make your choice. And so what James is walking us through here, what he wants us to come face to face with is that whenever we embrace the world's values. Whenever we value what the world values, whenever we love what the world loves, whenever we think like the world thinks, or whenever we live for the world's pleasures and possessions, even the good ones, pleasures and possessions that are morally neutral, they're not immoral things, but when we live for them, when we lust for them, when we prioritize them in our lives, whenever we do these things, then we are being friends with the world, and that makes us idolaters, which therefore makes us adulterers. Okay, so if we step back for a moment, we realize, no, this is to us. Actually, if you're anything like me, you realize, man, I'm not a one-time adulteress. I'm a serial adulteress because I do this all the time. 
I really do love God. I really want to obey God, but I really do love the world too. I really want to be loved by the world. I want to enjoy what the world has to offer. And every time I try to cling to both, I am committing adultery against God. It is that serious. James is cracking the lid on our sin to help us understand the small little compromises we make as we try to hold on to both God and this world at the same time. They are not small sins. They are not inexcusable. It's idolatry and adultery, which is at the top of the list. Most serious sins out there. Our fundamental problem in life is that we are double-minded adulteresses against God. Pretty harsh language that perfectly describes all of us. So that's our fundamental problem. Really serious stuff, really depressing stuff to look at this morning. The good news is the passage is not in there. We have this incredible problem that we are unfaithful to God, but God has a solution. One grand solution that begins in verse six. Look with me at verse six. He says, but he gives a greater grace. But he gives a greater grace. Probably if you read through that, you would just skip over that phrase. That wouldn't wouldn't stop you in your tracks. Really short little phrase there. There is so much theology and so much hope packed into those words. But he gives a greater grace. I love how it starts, but. Often that word is the most important word you'll find in any passage, a contrast, but. We have this incredible problem. We are unfaithful to God. We are continually unfaithful to God, but God gives a greater grace. He gives grace that is greater than our sin, greater than our temptation, greater than our propensity to love this world. In other words, he gives us the strength we need to walk with him. That's what the grace is in this passage. It's the strength to be faithful to God, to be a a devoted wife, if you will, to God as our perfect husband. God gives the strength. And that's a, a common theme you'll find throughout scripture. God always offers us the strength to do everything he commands. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that's, that's always true of God. He never commands you to do something without also offering you the strength to pull it off. When I was a, a little kid, I, I played a lot of team sports when I was in early elementary school. My problem was, no matter what sport we're talking about, I was the smallest and least coordinated kid on the field. Actually, it didn't matter the age group either. Unless we were playing toddlers, I was the smallest kid on my team. Um, I, I really was very small, very uncoordinated. And I just remember the coaches telling me, Blake, run faster, hit harder, catch that ball. And I just thought to myself, do you not see who I am? Do you not see my limitations? I can't, I can barely swing the bat, much less hit a moving ball. Are you kidding me? It was very frustrating to be in childhood athletics for me because I was told what to do but didn't have the ability to do it. Well, God never puts us in that situation. He never backs us into that kind of corner. If he has told you to do something, he is also offering you the strength to do it. That's what this promise is. We must be faithful to God. That is the command, but good news, God offers the strength to do that. He offers the grace we need to be faithful to him, but there is a catch. There's a catch. Notice whom God offers this strength to, verse six. He gives a greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God offers this strength, this grace, only to the humble, to those who will humble themselves before God. Now, that's a a key word in scripture, to humble yourself, to pino. It means to to lower or abase yourself. The word actually, originally it meant low-lying. It was was to get low 
before someone. You, you think lowly of yourself. You put yourself down in front of another person. You recognize your smallness and your weakness compared to another. And here it's humility before God. So it means that, that we get on our knees before God. We lower ourselves before God, recognizing his infinite strength, his holiness, his greatness, recognizing how sinful and small and needy we are before him. That's the idea of humility. And when, when we do that, when we have this attitude of lowliness before God, this attitude of humility, then God steps in to help us. That's another common theme through scripture. James is just hitting all of these common themes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God helps those who get down on their knees in front of him, who bow before him, who tremble before him. In contrast, if we have the opposite response, pride. Pride here, it just means um, self-sufficiency. You look at yourself and say, God, I got this figured out. God, I can, I can do this on my own. I'm, I'm, I'm self-sufficient. I can do what you require in my own strength. If you say that, if you walk in pride, I can do this in my own strength, then God says, okay, I will give you your wish. I will let you do life in your own strength. And, and you know where that leads. What is the un- an inevitable result if you try to do life in your own strength? You fail. You will end up unfaithful to God if you walk in pride. God willingly offers you strength. He offers you the grace that you must have if you are to be faithful to him. All you must do to receive it is humble yourself before him. Now, how do you actually do that? How is it that we humble ourselves before God? Well, that's where the rest of the passage goes. That's what James is gonna talk about in the rest of the passage. Humility, humbling ourselves before God is the big idea. You'll notice that it's mentioned in verse six, which we already read. It's mentioned again in verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Exalt is just the opposite of humility. Humble yourself, that means to go low. Exalt, that means to raise up. If you go low before God, God will raise you up to honor and glory. So at the, at the beginning here, verse six, and at the end, verse 10, it's all about humbling yourself. In between, verses seven through nine, James gives us 10 commands, 10 verbs that tell us how, practically speaking, we humble ourselves before God. What do you need to do this afternoon to humble yourself before God? That's verses seven through nine. 10 commands, there's a lot of repetition in the commands. If you lump it together, if you really study it, you'll find these 10 commands are referring to two big ideas. Two things you need to do today to humble yourself before God. And the first one, the first step in humbling yourself before God is to submit. That's verse seven, look again at verse seven. Submit therefore to God. Submit, hupatasso in Greek. It just means to put oneself in a submissive relationship to someone else. You put yourself in a submissive relationship to another person, and it's used often in Scripture. It's used of Jesus submitting to the Father, wives submitting to husbands, servants submitting to masters, all of us submitting to governing authorities. Frequent word throughout Scripture. When we look at this idea of submission, it, it includes obedience, but it's bigger than obedience. It's bigger than obedience because it's possible to obey without submitting. Um, our kids do that all the time. My twin three-year-olds often obey me without submitting to me. It happens every night. I tell them, Luke and Grace, it is time to clean up your toys. And they ignore me. And so I say again, Luke and Gracie, it is time to clean up your toys. 
and they play deaf once again. And so now I get down on my knees face to face with them. I actually physically make them look at me and I say, you will pick up your toys right now or you will go to timeout. What do they do? Scrunch up their face. They're quite upset at this moment. And grudgingly, probably complaining and whining, they will pick up their toys only so long as I watch over them. Well, technically speaking, that is obedience, but it's not submission. Because submission is an attitude. Submission is an attitude that honors and respects authority. It gratefully steps under authority. And as a result of that attitude of respect, it willingly obeys. Obedience is willing in submission. So I define it this way. Submission is an attitude of respect towards authority that leads to willing obedience. That's exemplified by Jesus. Think about how Jesus submitted to God the Father. What did Jesus say in the garden as he was headed to the cross? Not my will, but yours be done. That's submission. He did not complain. He did not grumble. He did not say to the father, fine, I'll go to the cross, but I'm never going to let you forget this. He didn't do that kind of stuff. He gratefully, willingly surrendered himself to the father. That's submission. So we're called to, to go before God with an attitude of respect that bows before him as our Lord and willingly obeys in all areas of life. That's what submission means. Now, now James moves us forward to submit to God. We're going to have to do something first. We're going to have to stop submitting to his enemy. That's the rest of verse seven. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Um, what James is, is doing here, resist the devil. What is, what is the opposite of, of resisting? Well, surrendering. You either resist Satan or you surrender to him. And the sad reality is for for so many believers, they have surrendered to Satan in some area of life. Maybe in most areas, they're still trying to walk with God, but in some particular area of life, maybe an area no one else knows about, they are surrendering to Satan. Maybe it's a sin that they have struggled with for years. It is addictive. It just seems to own them. Maybe it's a sexual sin like pornography or an eating disorder or or gambling or alcohol or something that just seems to own them and they fought and they fought and they fought and they're tired of fighting and so they give up. Or maybe it's some sin that just goes really deep. It's, it's maybe a lack of ability to forgive somebody who really hurt you. You just can't get there. Or maybe anger that you've always struggled with. It just seems to be part of your personality. And so you have struggled against this sin for so many years and finally you just say, I surrender. I'm gonna give up this little area and I'm gonna draw lines around it. I'm not turning my whole life over to Satan, but this little area, I surrender. I'm gonna accept a small level of sin in this part of my life and walk with God everywhere else. Lots of believers do that without realizing that's not how sin works. That's not how, if if you give Satan a part of your life, he will take all of it. He cannot send you to hell. You're a believer. You have eternal life, but he can make a hell of your life right now. And that's what he's going to do if you surrender any part of life to him. And so James is challenging us. In our lives, surrender is never an option. We must fight against Satan on all fronts. Now, that's not a call for sinless perfection. You're gonna continue to struggle with sin in this life. What James is saying is, yeah, you fall, you fail, but continue to fight. Fight in every part of your life. Rely upon the word, pray, use accountability, use all the tools that God gives you to fight Satan in every area of your life. And if you'll do that, he will flee from you. That's where submission to God begins. You have to quit submitting to Satan in any area of your life and instead give your whole life to God. Surrender it to God. Satan will flee, God will draw near to you. 
and strengthen you with grace. So step number one in humbling ourselves before God is to submit, to submit our lives completely to him. Step number two, now when I say step number two, it's not that these two things that I'm giving you this morning are chronological steps. You need to do this one first. Actually, both steps come simultaneously. You do them both together. James just presents them one and then two. So one was submit, two is repent. Really easy to remember. How do you humble yourself before God so that you can have access to his gracious strength? You submit and you repent. Repentance is the idea in verses eight and nine. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now you notice there's no place where the word repent or repentance fits into those verses. It's not here, but all of the commands that James uses there are just Old Testament ways of describing repentance. Repentance is actually really common in the Old Testament. Twelfth most common verb. In the Old Testament, the basic idea of repent is, is to turn. And when used of, of our relationship with God, it means to turn away from sin and towards God so that we escape God's punishment of our sin. Now, it's, it's so frequent in the Old Testament. It's so common throughout the Old Testament because we need repentance so often in life. Every time you sin, Every time you give in to sin, the proper response is to repent. Actually, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, repentance is for everyone. Whenever we sin, the right response is to turn from sin and turn towards God. In this context, James is talking to believers, to us. What do we do when we walk in sin? We repent, and James describes that repentance with all of those words in verses eight and nine. He begins by telling us repentance begins, really, the first step of it is to draw near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, that imagery there, to draw near to God, presupposes that you have been far from God, right? You've been away from God, enjoying some sin over here, walking in selfishness or pride or, or just worldliness. You're just doing your own thing, not necessarily immoral kind of stuff, but you're just over here. The first step in repentance is to come home, to come back to God, to draw near to God in prayer, in confession, in worship, and in his word. That's step number one of repentance. It's pictured by the story of the prodigal son. You remember that one from Luke? Jesus talks about this guy who went off to live a life of immorality far from his father. And one day in the midst of his painful consequences, he wakes up and he sees what a mess he's made of his life and he feels regret over that. And so he decides, I I want to be restored to my father. I want to come back to my father. What must he do first? He's got to go home. He's got to go back to his father. But you know how the story ends. Even while he's still a long way off, the father sees him and runs to him and embraces him and welcomes him back as a son. And that's what God wants to do for every one of us when we sin. When we sin and we're the prodigal son, God longs to welcome us back in love and grace and forgiveness if we'll just come home. Just draw near to him in his word and prayer and confession and worship and he draws us close. That's the first step of repentance. Second step of repentance is to stop sinning. That's what James is talking about in the rest of verse eight. Cleanse your hands. He's talking about deeds, sinful deeds we've committed and purify your hearts. He's talking about sinful thoughts, sinful attitudes and motivations. When he talks about cleanse and purify, he's not just talking about washing up. He's talking about stopping sinning. Repentance requires us to turn away from sin. It doesn't mean you're never going to sin again, but it means that at this moment in time, you turn from sin and commit to obey God. Indeed, in word and thought in all areas. 
So repentance, draw near to God, stop sinning, and finally, verse 9, be miserable, mourn, and weep. What is James doing there? Um, You need to understand, James is not wanting you to be depressed. He doesn't want you to be gloomy. He doesn't want your basic attitude towards life to be dark and sad. What James is talking to, we're talking about here, remember, we have an audience who has been sinning, but they think it's no big deal. All of our sins are, are small. And so as a result, verse nine, they're laughing. They're joyous with the world's joy. They're having all kinds of fun. Not recognizing the seriousness of all the sins they're committing. What James is calling them to is not a lifetime of gloom, but a moment of decisive grief over their sin. He is calling them to be saddened about their sin, to see their sin like God sees it. We in the New Testament, we call that confession. So confession means to agree with God about the seriousness of your sin. It's that moment when you get on your knees and weep over your sin and grieve over it and say, God, this, this was not small. This was not excusable. This is horrible what I did. That's what he's talking about here, this moment of grief over our sin. And just to clarify, we need to be clear, this is grief over the sin itself, not over the consequences. The guy who has been um, having all kinds of affairs and all of a sudden on affair number three or four, he suddenly gets caught and it's brought to light and everybody knows about it and he feels all this grief over the fact that he got caught. That's not repentance, That's not repentance. That's just sadness over the fact that there's consequences for sin. Grief is to weep over the sin itself, to regret that you ever gave into that sin in the first place. To repent is to draw near to God, to turn away from sin, and to grieve over our sins like God grieves over our sins. So let's draw this together. Let's summarize. James wants us to understand, as followers of God, we've committed some pretty serious sin. Every time we try to cling to the things of this world, to love God, but also love this world, to pursue what this world offers us, the fame, the power, the the possessions, the pleasures. When we try to be both friends with God and friends with the world, we're being idolaters. And that's adultery in God's eyes. That's serious stuff. But God offers grace. He offers strength to be faithful to him if we will just humble ourselves before him. And to do that, today, to humble yourself before God means that you submit You give your whole life to God under his lordship and willingly commit to obey him in every area and it means repentance. You draw near to God, turn from sin and grieve over the sins you've committed. Now as the men head back to prepare for communion, let me clarify something. Let me make absolutely sure that as we look at these subjects of repentance and and submission, we need to understand we are not talking about the gospel here. Remember, James is talking to people who are already believers. They have already come to faith in Christ. They already have received eternal life. They already have a relationship with God now and forever that they have received through faith alone, simply by believing that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. So they have already received that eternal life. Now James is talking to them, to believers. You know that actually from the very first word of our passage. What was that word? Adulteresses. What does adultery presuppose? Marriage. It presupposes that you are already related to God, that you are his people, that you are his wife. That is not true of unbelievers. They are not God's people. They cannot commit adultery against God. They still belong to the world. This is for us. This passage is about us who have already trusted in God. When we try to cling to the world, we are committing adultery against him. And so what we're gonna do this morning 
As we celebrate communion, usually when we think about communion, we think about joy and celebration. We have to celebrate what Christ did for us, and and we do want to do that this morning. We want to celebrate his death for us, but as we get ready to celebrate communion, we also want to take a moment to grieve. I want you to take this time to just go before the Lord and ask him to show you your sin and help you to see it like he sees it. I want you to ask God to crack the lid back just a little bit on the sin in your life so that you can see how serious it is, so that you can see it like he sees it. I want you to take this time and ask yourself, God, where are places where I'm compromising with the world? Where are there places where I am loving the world and clinging to the world's values, the world's pleasures, the world's possessions, the way of thinking that, that is so endemic in this world? Where am I being like the world? Where am I loving the world? God, show me. And ask God to show you the sins in your life that up to now, maybe they felt excusable. They felt small. They felt like you could justify them. Pray, ask God to show you the sins in your life and help you to to take those to him. So we're gonna take this time as the elements pass, we're gonna ask God to show us our sins so that we can grieve over it. And then as God brings to your mind sins that you have in your life, unfaithfulness that you've committed in your life, I'd ask you to just take that to the Lord in confession. Take that to the Lord. That's what repentance is, to confess it, to agree with God about your sin. Turn from that sin. Commit your life to God. Submit your life to him. Submit to obey him even in this area of your life. So just take this time as we get ready to celebrate the good news of communion. First, prepare your hearts by going before the Lord in confession, by acknowledging the seriousness of your sin. First Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we can have forgiveness and eternal life. And we pray for any person in this room who has not yet received that free gift through faith. Please, Lord. Open their eyes, help them to believe that your son really did die for them, to pay the price of all of their sins and rise from the dead so that they could have a relationship with you now and forever. I pray, Father, overcome whatever keeps them from believing that truth. Father, for all of us who have trusted in Jesus, Father, we come before you this morning and we confess we have been unfaithful. You have always been faithful to us. As a perfect father, a perfect husband, you have done nothing but love us every day of our lives. And yet, Lord, so often we have not loved you. We have loved the world instead. We have pursued the the pleasures and possessions of this world. We have bought into its values, into its way of thinking. Lord, we've been unfaithful to you. Please forgive us for that, Lord. We pray this morning that you would give us clean hands and pure hearts to worship you and exalt you, to live for you above all else. Thank you for your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Now let's respond and worship.